Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois, on a beautiful fall-like day. Uh, we have a very nice span of uh, clear skies, sunny, cool weather ahead of us. One of my favorite times of year, folks. And today we're going to be talking with Richard Henschel about garden tool maintenance, plus we have your uh, questions that have come in from all sources of the interwebs and into our offices. And you know, folks, I am not here by myself, but I am joined every single week by our co-hosts here. We have Katie Parker, local foods educator in Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I am just, I, I'm, I'm loving it right now. I am, I have the windows open. The screens are up. What a great day. I love it. Can you open your office windows? I can. Now, ah. I, I that's almost, I, I can, but I'm not, because when I look in my office window, we have a bunch of brown marmorated stink bugs trying to get in right oh, now. Oh, no. Yeah. You know what? We have some traps in our unit for brown marmorated, and we can't capture any, so we'll have to set some up outside your office next year. I have a spot for them, so <laughs> yeah, that would be perfect. How are you doing today, Katie? Oh, I'm doing well. Beautiful weather. Can't complain. Exactly. Yes. And folks, we are joined also by horticulture educator Ken Johnson in Jacksonville, Illinois. Hello, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. Well, Ken, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. The weather's nice. The beard's starting to come in handy finally. Exactly. Not, oh, yeah. Not, not making everything all hot, so... <laughs> But now we're getting into soup weather, and then the beard becomes problematic again, I feel like. Yes, I did. Well, it was for Christmas or for my birthday. I got one of those little mustache guards for cups, so you don't get, like, water or milk all over your mustache when you oh, drink. That's, so. that's wonderful. So you have to have, have one for that. soup. That's cool. I'll send you some pictures. <laughs> well, at least, at least we have masks now to help cover that up. Yes. If you do true. have any leftovers. I'm saving it for later. I, I do enjoy wearing masks in public because I don't have to worry about what's in my teeth. Do I need to blow my nose? It's It's been fantastic. Definitely some positives. <laughs> Got to look on the bright side of life. Well, Ken and Katie, today we are going to be talking with Richard about garden tool maintenance. But I want to ask both of you, uh, Katie, what garden tool could you not do without? Um, so in undergrad... Um, I used to like to just go to the garden section and walk around, and I found a garden knife. And ever since I found that, it has changed my life. Uh, so this is a tool that is like serrated on one side, and it's a, a knife on the other side. Um, and I think they're te te technically meant for splitting plants, uh, but we use them for everything. We kind of use it as a trowel. Um, I like to use it to dig dandelions because it has like a forked end so you can dig deep and then kind of get the, the root of the dandelion. Uh, it's just really handy if your soil's hard. Uh, it's nice because it will easily break up your soil. So I'd have to say that's probably my favorite. I, I do love the, the garden uh, knife, soil knife. I've, I've seen a lot of different kinds of those. That sounds like a pretty nice one. Sometimes they even have like little tick marks that shows like you know, one inch, two inch, three inch, so you know how deep you're digging if you need a certain depth of things. Yeah, that's an added bonus too. Well, kid, same question to you. What 
garden tool could you not do without? Katie stole mine. So I have, <laughs> I have a similar tool set. It's got the the kind of the V-tip <clears throat> for digging dandelions and, and the, the serrated edge and the, the marks on there for digging. Um, so that, or, or something like a hori hori, which is kind of the same idea. Again, it's got that serrated edge, cutting edge on it for digging and and stuff like that. I, I find that to be kind of the most beneficial. Then probably, um, maybe probably a pair of pruners after that. We're probably something to dig with, something to cut with. Would be my, my two biggies. Yeah, I, I would be right there, especially with the, the pair of pruners. I, I don't know if I could do... Uh, most of my yard work without a pair of pruners. So do do both of you have a, a sheath for your uh, sole knife? Uh, no, I do not. I don't either. I That would be the next step, I think, in the, the tool uh, uh, getting all the, the goodies for, because I, I love having a sheath for my pruners, at least, because I keep those on my hip pretty much at all times when I'm... Not only when I'm doing yard work... I actually use my pruners quite a bit, even when I'm doing person in-person classes with extension, uh, especially like master naturalist or uh, uh, tree and shrub classes. So I I use that quite a bit. Do we need a license to carry a garden knife, though? Because that could be dangerous. Oh well, you'd be like in the Crocodile Dundee movie when uh, he pulls out his machete in the subway when he's getting mugged. This is a knife. That's not a knife. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I need a, a, a sheath for my pruners because those frequently get left outside mm -hmm. and they get rained on and they get rusty <laughs> and then I get angry. <laughs> so it, it would definitely be helpful. Well, Ken, speaking of which, we have just the person to talk with today so that you're not getting so angry at yourself for leaving the pruners outside or the kids either. Um, so Richard joins us from Kane, DuPage, and Kendall Counties. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Always good to be on the air. Well, now we got to ask you, Richard, what gardening tool can you not do without? Well, my background came out of uh, wholesale retail nursery, and uh, you pretty much can't do nursery work without a shovel. So I always like to think about the expression, if all you have is a hammer, everything else looks like a nail. Because you can dig holes, you can slice off weeds on the soil, you can edge beds with it. So my go-to is probably a, a shovel that uh, doesn't have an extremely large head on it. So it's not uh, tiring if you're going to uh, work with it all day long. Second to that would probably be what yours is, Chris, a, a pair of hand pruners in a sheath. And then third would probably be a version of what's already been talked about here. I use what's called a sod knife. And it's just a heavy, very heavy, uh, probably the steel's probably a quarter inch thick. Uh, and you do all the things that have already been talked about, digging dandelions, dividing, um, in a way, some generic cutting if you wanted to use that, uh, that ser serrated edge. And yeah, I have mine in a sheath because uh, I have too many holes in my back pocket from carrying that knife around without. <laughs> so, Richard, for your shovel, do you sharpen your blade for that? I sure do. Uh, one of the, one of the, you know, I've always said pruning and yard work uh, should be a joy, not a burden. 
and if you start to dig a hole or do anything with that shovel and it just has an edge like a butter knife it's just extremely difficult to have a good time so uh, I am I'm always by saying always probably twice the three times a year I'm taking the time to maintain a, a nice clean sharp edge on my shovels my garden spades my uh, flat spades um, uh, my big t what I'll call like a tile spade it's a it's a much longer spade for digging deep uh, all that is uh, maintained with the nice sharp edge so Richard when you're sharpening how exactly do you go about doing that do you use a file or do you have like a grinding wheel or or how exactly do you go about doing that if I'm only concerned with touching up between any kind of major sharpening in which I would have used a grinding wheel or a, a grinder, a bench grinder, uh, a flat file works just fine if you're just talking about uh, touching up the edge. You know, uh, you're digging in the ground, you're going to hit rocks, you're going to hit uh, a number of things that you weren't expecting and you can put dings and notches and and do a bit of damage to that very sharp edge so uh, being able to touch it up um, with a regular flat file uh, and that is done carefully because you probably want to be wearing a, a pair of protective gloves when you're doing that operation because your hand is moving right towards the uh, sharp edge of the shovel or the sharp edge of the blade no matter what you're sharpening. Are there any other things that we should be doing Richard, to prolong the lifespan of our tools. Oh, absolutely. Um, Ken mentioned one, which is don't leave it. Don't leave them out in the rain, because what will happen if you have a nice sharp tool, whether it's hand pruners or a shovel or a, a trowel or a spade, uh, that that exposed brand new metal that gives you the sharp edge will rust um, just about immediately. So leaving them out in the rain is no good. Also, what a lot of people do, they'll get all done and they'll just kind of jam the shovel or spade back in the ground because they're not quite finished. And the soil moisture will do the same thing. And they come out and and uh, there you have already have a rusty shovel. And there's a tremendous difference between trying to use a rusty shovel, which has that, that may be microscopic, but it's got that, that coating on it. And that rust kind of grabs the soil. And that's when the things start to build up on the shovel. And just pushing that back down in the ground again is just more takes more effort than a nice clean shovel that will slide right through the soil. So um, keeping them dry, um, not leaving them out in the rain, don't leave them stuck in the ground, or um, is a good beginning anyway to keeping your tools sharp. At my old house, I I actually remember in the garage I would just put my my shovel. It was a it was a, a square uh, shovel. And I would put that on the garage floor, concrete. And I remember after uh, a few months, I hadn't used it. There was a little line of rust at the bottom where the shovel met the concrete. And I guess like moisture came up from the concrete floor. And in that interface where that metal hit the concrete, it cre there, like held moisture right there. And I was shocked that that happened. I didn't realize that. So now I hang my shovels up off of the concrete floor. Good idea. We... Uh... If, if you have the opportunity in your garden shed and things like that, yeah, just get them off the ground. Hang them up by the handles. If it's a shovel, you turn the shovel upside down and you kind of can, then can hang the, the shovel upside down, I'll say, on two, two commercially available hooks or a couple nails into the, into the garden shed. You can hang them that way and uh, suspend them that way. Uh, yeah, keeping them, keeping them off the ground, keeping them dry, uh, 
other things that will help longevity. When you get all done, take a, a putty knife or some other kind of a scraper and literally scrape off any soil that is left on the shovel. That soil will absorb moisture, which then creates that rust spot again. So you want to wipe that down. I also follow that a lot of times with some form of a rough um, piece of fabric. Personally, I just got a chunk of burlap laying around out of the nursery business. For me, that makes sense. And uh, that, again, it works to wipe off additional material after you've scraped it with your putty knife and clean and dry off the ground are all good ways to maintain uh, a nice looking tool. Okay, so if we've looked at kind of the head, say, of, of a shovel, what about the handle? I, I have like all wooden handle tools and I've got to say, I've gotten splinters before. Some of them are kind of cracking, splitting. What should I be doing to preserve these handles? When they come store-bought, uh, there's a very thin layer of like lacquer or varnish on them, but not doesn't take very long that that's worn away. And again, uh, when they're cracking, a lot of times moisture will get in there and continue the cracking. So uh, you can take just uh, um, some sandpaper, and it really doesn't matter what grit, um, and sand off the sharp edges that that you catch and give you that splinter and then you're going to need to put some sort of a wood treatment on it uh, uh, some sort of an oil uh, there's a number of them there's uh, you can uh, uh, thin linseed oil down and use it uh, commercial uh, uh, stains that soak in preservative type materials they'll also work uh, and the, the handle will, re will really return to its not quite its former state because the cracks don't go away, but at least you're not getting splinters any longer. Yeah, that's what I, I actually rubbed the, the handle down with. Um, oh, it was the only oil I had on, on hand at the moment. It was, uh, it's like for cutting boards for the kitchen. It was sure. a food grade. Oh my gosh, that made a huge difference. It's like I got a new tool. Yeah, um, some of the wood preservative materials that you might use on a wood deck will also function, assuming you're able to, if you will, use it with your bare hands once it's dried in place. So you got to read the label there. But there are a number of woodworking products that are designed, as you say, for anything that's uh, food grade, certainly usable uh, on the handle of a wooden a wooden shovel or a wooden spade handle. Yeah. I, on that note, I also I'll just remind folks listening to make sure that you do read those instructions. Uh, if you have to wear gloves to apply this stuff, make sure that you're protecting your skin. Um, and then usually you, you should be letting it dry before you handle it. But... Now, what about our big, bigger tools that we use for mowing our yard? What should we do to get our mowers ready for winter? That's always an interesting proposition when it comes to, uh, um, you know, you can talk about winterizing the lawnmower and then you look out in the backyard and you've done it and you look out in the backyard and the lawn needs to be mowed again one more time. Well, you just kind of negated all the effort you did already, but at some point in the season when you're absolute, absolutely through mowing, taking, uh, again, some sort of a scraper like a putty knife uh, and tilting the mower deck up so you can get underneath there safely, and uh, scraping out all the dead matted grass uh, that's been underneath the deck that whole time because that's going to sit there in the fall and through the winter and early next spring and that has moisture in it and you're going to start to again rust the begin to rust the bottom of the deck um, 
and more importantly, when you have a clean deck, the mower itself runs a lot better. It, if you have a mulching mower and it's all clogged up with dried up grass underneath there, it really impacts the ability of the mower to, to do the mulching, and, and that's why we bought it. But even a conventional mower, uh, keeping the deck clean throughout the season is helpful, but sure, but for sure by fall, you want to scrape out the underneath side. Uh, you can take a wire brush and clean that off additionally after you've used something like the, the, the putty knife. Uh, you want to blow the debris off the top of the deck, uh, uh, the grass out from underneath the, the cowling on the, on the mower itself. So those are some of the um, debris kinds of things that we can do. Um, and, and today, while we have pretty much uh, plastic gas tanks on our lawnmowers, the gas can still go bad. Uh, and so the, one of the things uh, that I do, uh, and I just did it here in September, I went and bought hopefully my last two gallons of gas for the season, but I went ahead and put a stabilizer in that. That way, as you mow the lawn with the stabilizing material in the gas, that works its way out of the gas tank, through the gas lines, through the carburetors, and come next spring, you won't have an issue really uh, starting the lawnmower at all, because the gas uh, will remain fresh, and uh, there'll be no, and the stabilizers also pretty much eliminate any water, so you won't have any water there to, to, to really worry about. Um, cleaning the, you know, the air cleaner is always a good thing to do, um, and put it, blow it out, or replace it and put a new one in. Also, um, you know, easier starting happens when you use an, when you've got a good new spark plug. So that's simple enough every couple years to uh, go ahead and you know, go ahead and make that switch. Uh, so those are some of the things uh, certainly you can do, and it just goes for. Uh, uh, getting the lawnmower put away in the end uh, very nicely. Oh, you can also oil the wheels. They're kind of a, a dry bearing brass kind of a thing usually, but uh, benefit from a bit of just a few drops on, on the bearing area. That'll help the lawnmower roll easier, and that's not a big deal if it's self-propelled, but it is a bigger deal if it's a traditional push mower that you're pushing through the grass. And is that stabilizer, that's something you just buy at the store and you pour in the can, right? Chris, you can get that at a gas station. You can get that at hardware stores. You can get that, of course, at your small uh, engine appliance place where you bought the lawnmower, those kinds of places. Yeah, and it only takes uh, just a very small capful per gallon. So uh, it's very difficult to measure the right amount, the right amount for the gas, uh, the gas um, tank on the mower, but I just add the appropriate amount to the last gallon or two I buy. Uh, and then it's mixed. And by the way, that also works very well when you get into snowblower season too. Uh, that conditions the fuel that's in the snowblower for the winter time. So um, it gets used in a, in a good way. Oh, that's a really good tip to put it in the, the gas can and not try to measure it out after it's already been in the piece of equipment. That's a really good idea. Well, it just it's it's again just so easy. You take the empty gas can to the gas station with you. You measure in what you need to, and then as you fill the tank, of course, uh, the gas can, of course, it's immediately mixed, mm -hmm. and you don't have any issues with that either. If it's in your uh, gas tank of the lawnmower, um, it's just diff You know, there's no really no agitation. Gas on these uh, gasoline engined. Uh, appliances that we use around the yard, uh, that's all gravity feed, so there's really no mixing. So uh, having it mixed in, in the gas can is a good way to go. So Richard, what is like, 
what is uh, another kind of big oops moment when uh, using tools and now you you're you're damaging them? One of the one of the things I see a lot of people do, and they'll be working the ground when maybe they shouldn't be, and the shovel's got say mud on it and things like that. Well, they they'll go take the garden hose and hose off all the mud, but don't but then don't dry off um, the tool properly, and the whole the whole shovel or the whole garden spade just becomes this mass of rusty metal. Um, and one of the easiest ways to when you get to that point is to get that get that shovel or spade cleaned off again and dried off as best you can is to go ahead and use some sort of a light oil on a small amount of uh, paper toweling or a waste rag that you can throw away after afterwards and you're literally putting an oil very very light oil over the surface of that and then it won't in turn rust and then you can hang it up and know that when you come back, you're not going to have this rusty piece of metal that really isn't going to work very well. Yeah, I've heard the tip of uh, filling a bucket with sand, putting, someone said used motor oil in it, and I um, I don't know about that, but um, yeah, and then you dip it in that sand oil mixture, then you towel it off, and you're good to go for the next time. But yeah, I having kids and pets having a bucket full of sand and oil is probably not a good thing for me. So your suggestion of just kind of wiping it with the oiled rag is much better for me. Yeah. The, um, the, 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 the oily sand, uh, well, some people will just put the shovel right in the oily sand and not take it back out, which still prevents it from rusting. Others will pull it back out and then wipe it down and, and store it away. But that's more of a, out in the country, uh, more of an agricultural practice maybe than something that you're ever able to get accomplished in a safe manner in town. And it should be, if we're going to do it, it ought to be fresh oil where uh, rather than some sort of a waste oil that one, you don't know the kind of contaminants that are in there. And we are going to turn around and use that tool to dig in the garden um, and or dig up something that we're about to eat. So um, I would prefer something cleaner. Well, folks, that was a lot of great information on tool maintenance, especially after we have used and abused them this year. But as you know, this is also a question and answer show from you, the homeowner. And so we have uh, several questions here that have come into Good Growing, extension offices and websites galore. Richard, would you mind kicking it off here answering this first question? Go for it. All right. So this one comes from Northern Illinois, and uh, this is kind of a, a unique case here. So a homeowner had a yard that backed up to a golf course. The course has since closed, and they have now converted it into a wetland. They want to know what trees should they plant now that they've gone from fairway to wetland. All right. Yep, that is that is going to be a bit of a challenge, but Mother Nature's uh, up for that challenge, I think. Uh, most plants um, will um, that tolerate the wet soils will do so in 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 a in a general way. You know, the damp conditions that persist throughout the season, they're also able to survive those times of the year when maybe that wetland becomes a little deeper and more and has more water in it than expected and they may even stand be their roots may even be standing in water for a little bit 
but the uh, but the trees that come to mind um, very quickly would be of course any anything in the birch family and we think about birches and where do we see those along river banks and in uh, other bodies of water so you've got any number of birch trees that could go in uh, the birch tree has a relative uh, that we know it as black alder uh, that will that is also very uh, moisture tolerant if you will so birch trees or black alder um, red maple and its cultivars uh, also withstand some pretty good amounts of moisture uh, that's not true of some of the other maples uh, yet red maple uh, is able to do that and then the last one that comes to mind and and uh, you know don't me don't hit me in the side of the head here but it's swamp white oak um, it's really very good in heavier wetter soils we see it upland all the time it's in parkways it's in front yards it's in backyards and yet it has a very good level of uh, moisture tolerance so swamp white oak birch black alder and, and red maple are the trees that come to mind uh, nothing however is going to grow in standing water all year long roots require uh, uh, soil oxygen air in order for the root to literally absorb the, the, the nutrition out of the soil and there's an active energy pump if you will that requires oxygen to make that happen otherwise nothing gets moved up into the canopy uh, so they can't stand in water 365 they can tolerate different periods they're able to tolerate more water when they're dormant than when they're alive in the summertime so those were my four that popped off the top of my head here for you Chris Swamp White Oak's definitely been getting more attention in my neck of the woods as well a lot of folks are planning it because they really like the texture of the bark uh, kind of that exfoliating peeling texture of it uh, so I'm seeing the swamp white oak being planted quite a bit more in uh, western Illinois. Well, it's, it's, it is a good tree. And mm -hmm. for, you know, when, when you, you look at the ornamental value in a landscape, you, of course, are looking for, you know, uh, a bloom in the springtime. You're looking for a seed pod fruit, something else that happens as because it had flowered. You're looking at fall color. And then, and then the fourth one, which is really, for the most part, a bonus here, would be something like exfoliating bark or colorful bark. We plant birch trees because we like the color of the uh, bark, plus it's exfoliating. Um, and these heavy barked trees like swamp white oak that have some just strong, distinct character to the bark is, is also visually appealing. Our next question, it comes from Facebook, and uh, send this one to Katie. Katie, they want to know, as we record here, September 22nd, is it too late to plant fall cover crops? Yeah, so for cover crops, we're kind of getting on the edge of that time of where um, it's getting too late to plant. Uh, so typically around September 24th, at least for Adams County, is a period where we would stop planting some of our cover crops. So that would be your cover crops that aren't going to overwinter. And that would include um, like your radish, turnip, and your clovers, any clovers that you'd plant as these will be killed by our first freeze. Um, and so you're not going to get a lot of establishment between here or September 22nd and uh, typically around the first or second week of October. Uh, so it wouldn't be very effective to plant those. 
Now, it's not too late for something that's going to overwinter, such as like your winter barley. Um, we also have winter cereal ryegrass. Um, that's another option that can be used. You could also do like winter wheat. Um, and this, this time is still okay. Typically those can be planted up until the end of October. Some of them can go later. Um, but a resource that I really like to use is called Midwest Cover Crops Council. And so what you can do is you can go online and you can put what state you're located in and then also your county. If you want to, you can also include your goals, like are you looking for it to help break up compaction? Are you just wanting soil coverage, etc.? Um, and then from there, you can look at the different cover crops that are options for your area and see when the best planting period is for those. And so that's a really handy resource to use if you're unsure of what you can still plant. Fantastic. And that was the Midwest Cover Crop Council. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. We can link to that in the description below. Our next question comes from the Extension website. So eExtension has a resource for folks that can log on and ask questions, upload pictures, and it will tailor it towards your geographic location. This comes from St. Clair County, Illinois, and they have what they think is a tarantula. Now, having just moved here to Illinois, they didn't think we had tarantulas, but uh, they, they submitted a photo, and so Ken, fresh off of your spiders webinar a few like about a month ago, what do you think? Do we have tarantulas now in Illinois? So to the best of my knowledge, we do not have tarantulas in Illinois. I have seen some uh, pictures and stuff that are su supposed to be from um, southwest Missouri of tarantulas. So there are, I, I guess you can find them occasionally in Missouri, but again, best as I know, we don't have them in Illinois. Um, looking at the picture, I think it's probably a wolf spider. Um, kind of looking at those that eye arrangement. Again, if you listen to that webinar, if you look at the eye arrangement of some sp of spiders, um, how those different eyes are, are placed on the head. You can kind of narrow them down to at least the family that they're in. Um, so looking at this picture, it's got two eyes kind of on the top of the head, two on the front, and then we can't see the, the, the very front of the head, but if it's a wolf spider, it's going to have a, a row of four eyes down at the bottom. So we can see those top two eyes, so I'm assuming it's, it's probably going to be some kind of wolf spider. Um, and as it starts getting cooler out, you know, a lot of times we're going to start finding more and more spiders. Um, either trying to make their way inside or they just kind of accidentally um, make it inside and and you know you don't need to be concerned about spiders they're not they're more afraid of you than you are of them and and if they do get into your house they're going to be controlling insects and stuff in your basement or in your bathroom wherever they may be they'll be controlling insects for you so not necessarily something you really need to worry about that's right spiders one of our greatest allies in the home defense of other critters and creepy crawly things they are our friends. Hey, Ken, uh, there's kind of, I don't know if it's urban myth or urban legend, but, you know, a lot of times you hear folks talking and it's like, well, if you got one wolf spider, you got two because they roam around in pairs. Uh, any validity to that? I have not. So I, I admittedly I am far from a spider expert, but I haven't seen anything kind of indicating where they, they roam around in pairs. Um, well, I, yeah, so I, I don't know. Go ahead. No, I was going to say they don't wander around with a vest and gang colors on together, but, <laughs> but, uh, and I've only, whenever I've come across, you know, I've only, you only ever come across one, 
And it's like, if the story is true, if the urban myth is true, then so where is the other one? And do I have to wonder where that's at somewhere in my house? So just trying to uh, dispel here maybe uh, what is indeed an urban myth and, and, and to calm some nerves. Yeah, I would, I would, I would be inclined to stick that in the myth category, kind of like your, your daddy long legs are the most venomous spider in the world. They're not even spiders. They don't have fangs or anything. They're not poisonous or venomous, so you don't have to worry about those either. Well, Ken, is it true, though, do mama wolf spiders carry their babies on their back? Can you see that? Yeah, so you can – so they'll carry their the egg sac around, and then when they hatch, those, um, those spiderlings will hang out on the mom's – on the abdomen – um, and they can be on there for, for a decent amount of time, and they'll kind of travel around with her. And then as they get larger, they'll start to disperse. But they do kind of show some some parental care um, with their spiderlings. And then they start e-learning, and the mother eats them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Oh, our next question is from McDonough County. And Katie, um, uh, we'll shoot this one to you. The, this is about rhubarb. And in this situation, these folks have rhubarb that have gotten huge over the last few years. They want to know, should they divide it now or in the fall, or, or should they wait till spring? Because they have some friends they'd like to give it to now. And if they give it to those friends now, will, it be, will their friends be able to harvest from their new rhubarb next spring? So it sounds like your rhubarb is in good condition to be split. However, it's typically recommended to do your splitting during the springtime over fall because the plant will have the entire growing season to rebuild roots and root preserves uh, to prepare for winter. However, if you are wanting to divide it this fall, uh, it can be done, but the splitting should be done late enough in the season that the leaves will not have time to regrow. So that's about this time of year, um, late September, as the plant is starting to shut down. But it should, it should be done before freezing temperatures um, shut the plant down for winter. If you do split too early um, in the fall, it will encourage the plant to produce new leaves. And that's not providing the plant with sufficient time to establish those leaves. And so that can um, cause some plant damage and the plant may not survive during the winter. Um, you also probably won't want to harvest your rhubarb the first year. So if they plant it this fall, they're likely not going to be able to harvest, harvest it this next spring as you want it to be able to grow and establish and build up root, root reserves. So your best bet may just be to wait until next spring and you can get a full growing season in uh, and allow that that plant to grow and get established. Katie, shouldn't you also, and I'm just kind of generally asking, um, shouldn't you remove any kind of a flower stalk that starts to form that first season so all the energy goes into the foliage and roots? That is correct, yes. So if you have a flower, it's going to send resources to the flower rather than the leaves and the roots. Um, and so you don't want that to happen. I guess I also have a, a, a follow-up to that. Um, you know, if it's asparagus we're talking about, they tell you to limit your harvest the first year that you take any asparagus spears. Is that something you would also have to do when we're talking about rhubarb? Are you talking about, like, that 
second year limit your right, harvest? Right. Or, or should we limit what how many uh, stalks are harvested if it's a newer plant? Um, I haven't seen anything like that. I've only seen um, just not harvesting your first year planting. Uh, but I think you could probably maybe take a look at your plant and see how it's doing overall. If it's thriving and doing well, uh, producing nicely, I would say go ahead and uh, harvest away. But if it if it's looking pretty sad and it's not thriving, it's not very large or robust, um, I would maybe be hesitant to harvest much. Okay. So at best, I may only get one rhubarb pie and not three. Now, I, when it comes to asparagus, you know, we tell folks not to harvest that first year or two. But that sounds like torture. I, I say this is what you, you know, you really let the plant devote its energy and reserves to building up a solid root system, get some good vegetative growth on it. But you should reach down, pick a spear that first year, take a bite, you know, that, I feel like we're torturing them by telling them we can't, they can't pick that first year, but it's more tongue in cheek here, but you know. Yeah, we get it. <laughs> All right, our final question for today. This comes from Champaign County. Uh, they have a lawn question, so uh, we'll direct this one to Richard. So they're, they're asking here for years, they've used a lawn care company to treat crabgrass in the lawn. They come several times during the season, but they still have crabgrass. Is there an alternative treatment for crabgrass that doesn't involve toxic chemicals? Okay, well that's uh, an interesting scenario, and I, I'm going to assume, although they come several times a season, they're not treating for crabgrass every time they're in the yard. Crabgrass treatments are normally, uh, for the most part, the first and or maybe second treatment they provide in the yard. And crabgrass, the majority of the crabgrass germinates uh, earlier in the spring, and that's where the treatments are focused on. Um, so if crabgrass continues to be present after those initial treatments, um, the crabgrass has either uh, germinate, started to germinate before the treatment goes on, in which case the treatments do not do a thing towards germinating or once the crabgrass gets out of the seed stage and becomes a tiny young plant, the uh, the preventative uh, crabgrass control materials really aren't effective against it. it they're really only effective against uh, seeds and perhaps if this once the seed is sprouted and the little root radical come out, uh, that's about its extent of its uh, susceptibility to that product. Um, so there's either crabgrass germinating and and too far along before the treatment is made, or if the treatment is put on too early, while we think of crabgrass as a springtime annual grassy weed, uh, crabgrass has the opportunity to germinate well into the summer months if the conditions are right. So one side of that fence or the other, I'm going to guess here for you that the crabgrass treatment uh, is missing uh, a particular group of crabgrass seed, either it gets on too late, uh, it may control the majority of it, but those earlier little crabgrass seedlings have escaped, or the product has run its course in terms of how long it can be effective, and the crabgrass just continues to germinate after that. The other scenario that might be working here is if um, the preventers work because they kind of 
um, impact what's at the soil in that bit of soil where the crabgrass is able to germinate. If you disturb the soil, if you add additional black dirt, top dressing, and that material contains crabgrass seed, it's just going to germinate just as you would expect it to. So there might be another reason why we have crabgrass at different, different times of the year. And those visits from the lawn care company, as you mentioned, they're probably not treating for crabgrass. Crabgrass being a grassy weed, usually those treatments during the, the summer uh, are for broadleaf weeds, you know, your dandelions and clovers and the like. Uh, so, yeah, Richard, it's too late to do anything this year. Oh, for sure, for right now. Um, there are, there, so the origin, the initial kind of products that are on the market are preventative only, meaning it's got to be on there before the crabgrass seed starts to germinate. So that's just really all about timing. And then there are a couple newer products out there um, which will go ahead and, and manage the crabgrass as a tiny young seedling when it's at a re relatively vulnerable stage. And those products won't have any impact once the crabgrass gets up to a certain growth stage. So if it's going to be a crabgrass post-emergent material going down, it has to go on while the seedlings are relatively small. The pre-emergents have to go down before crabgrass seed begins to germinate at all. So there'll be a time here where you won't be able to control it uh, at least chemically any longer in the season. Um, and you typically get crabgrass where you have, um, I'll, I'll say, slightly disturbed soils, the parkway where, um, um, you know, the snow has been dumped there all winter long and there's some salt in there and it's kind of damaged the lawn grasses so there's a little more open area, the open ground and crabgrass is able to grow there. Uh, areas where you mow and you maybe scalp the grass or cut too short, exposing the soil to sunlight, you're going to get crabgrass in those areas. So culturally, you want to make sure that you're, you're mowing high enough to shade the soil to prevent that crabgrass seed from receiving the kind of UV light and all those things that are coming from the sun to uh, uh, promote germination. And, uh, um, and, and say mow at that higher rate uh, for the health of the lawn. So a full, thick, heavy lawn will just not allow crabgrass to germinate. It's those uh, questionable areas, uh, stressed turf, those kinds of things that really allow crabgrass, which is more or less an opportunistic kind of a annual weed in our yards, to come on pretty hard. And then going back to the germination, isn't it something like when the soil is 55 degrees for two or three days in a row is when those seeds actually start germinating for crabgrass? When yes, Ken, right on. You you're talking about uh, the warmer temperatures. So when you see, if you will, farmers planting their fields of corn, grass, and corn or monocots, they kind of go together. Um, there, there's your timing element. Uh, so another historical kind of almanac kind of a thing was when uh, oak leaves are the size of a mouse ear, when lilacs. Excuse me, when Forthysia, Forthysia, somebody else say that word for me, Forsythia bloom, thank you, when, when those shrubs start to bloom is also another visual timing uh, that that can occur. 
the Forsythia thing is kind of thrown out the window these days because now that was the old original common light, uh, common Forsythia. Uh, we now have so many cultivars out there, and they are blooming at different times, early and late. So you really can't use for Forsythia any longer. Um, oak leaves and the mouse ear thing, I've never picked up a mouse and saw how big or little their mouse ear is, so uh, uh, that's a bad one, but I think the soil's the best one, so the 55 degree thing, and yeah, it has to be warm, consistently warm, that is, it can't be 55 during the day, and then the soil cool back off, it has to be consistently 55 degrees for several days before uh, crabgrass will begin to germinate. Well, that was a lot of great information, folks. And you know, this this uh, this man, Richard Henschel, he once taught me, you may have heard of him, mow high, mow often, keep those blades sharp. So, Richard, thanks so yes. much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for remembering my mantra. <laughs> Never forget, I, I type it probably at least once or twice every single week. So, I make my kids write it down every day. Okay. All right. The Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson. The show is edited by me, Chris Enroth. Thank you to our co-host, Katie Parker, Ken Johnson, for being, as always, every week, faithfully on the show. Thank you, Chris and Richard. Do it yep. again next week. Thank you. Always a good time. Thanks. And uh, next week, we shall be back again. We will be talking with Martha Smith about spring bulbs. In the fall? Yes, because we got to plant them now. So, folks, that is our show for today. Listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. And as always, keep on growing.